This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And I write two blogs, one called Law Sites and another called Media Law. Uh, just over a year ago, President Bush signed the Class Action Fairness Act into law. The president called the legislation a critical step in restoring common sense and balance to America's legal system. But uh, many consumer groups and attorneys general thought otherwise and have called it uh, a, a license for big corporations to defraud consumers. So today we're going to look a little bit at what what's happened uh, to the Class Action Fairness Act since it became law. We have three guests to help us talk about that today. First is a nationally recognized appellate attorney, Howard Bashman, who regularly argues cases before the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia and uh, Pennsylvania's State Appellate Courts, and who also writes the blog, How Appealing. Welcome to the program, Howard. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And our second guest today is Shannon Duffy. Shannon is a reporter who's been covering the courts in Philadelphia for 17 years. He writes for the Legal Intelligencer, Philadelphia's daily legal journal, as well as the New Jersey Law Journal and Law.com. Welcome, Shannon. Nice to join you. And finally, we have with us today uh, an attorney who's had uh, first-hand experience with CAFA in the courtroom. Uh, Richard Cohen is a litigator with the firm of Lowy, Dannenberg, Bemperad, and Selinger in White Plains, New York. Uh, he's currently representing Aetna, I'm sorry, in its defense of a class action lawsuit on behalf of retail pharmacies claiming contractual underpayments. The case is uh, Maine Drug Incorporated versus Aetna U.S. Healthcare Incorporated. Welcome, Richard. Hi. Uh, Richard, I wonder if we could just start with you. I know your, your time is short, uh, but I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, the, the case that you're, uh, you're involved in and what the, uh, how the Class Action Fairness Act comes into play in that case. Well, the, the, the facts of my case aren't, aren't of any particular relevance uh, with respect to, to the Class Action Fairness Act, but the procedure, uh, we've, we've had a ruling on December 14th of 2005 that is of interest to to CAFA wonks uh, that may be out there. Uh, the Class Action Fairness Act, which was enacted on February 18 of 2005, has a provision in there that says that it applies only to actions which were commenced uh, after the enactment of CAFA. So, you know, once again, Congress left us with a, a somewhat a, a, a term that, that lawyers can exploit uh, in terms of ambiguity as to when was an action commenced or when wasn't it commenced. And uh, in, in our case, the, uh, the complaint was filed uh, before the enactment, but the summons was filed after. So when did the case commence? And predictably, the plaintiffs say it commenced when they filed the complaint, and we say it didn't commence until they filed the summons, and uh, what we did was we we looked to the law of the state where the case was filed to say 
the only uh, law that could apply as to when an action was commenced in state court would be the law of that state. The plaintiffs uh, say that uh, federal law should apply. We said that state law should apply. And uh, in the December 14 decision by the uh, federal district court to which we removed the case under CAFA, the court agreed with us that the state law should apply. And then looking at the state law, ruled that under Alabama state law, the action was not commenced until the plaintiffs had demonstrated an intent to proceed immediately with the prosecution of the action, and that they had not done so until they furnished the clerk with the summons, which occurred after CAFA. Ergo, the case commenced after CAFA. Howard Bashman, I know you've been writing, uh, you've, you've had an interest in CAFA, and been writing about this. Uh, how have consumer groups who've uh, been opposed to this law, how have they been responding to CAFA, and uh, what's your impression of how the law has been working uh, since its enactment? Well, well, to start at the beginning, what's at stake here is that, uh, generally speaking, the plaintiff's lawyers would prefer to have their class action cases heard in the state court system, whereas uh, the defendants who are being sued in class actions would prefer to have the case heard in federal court because the general impression is that it's more difficult to get a case certified as a class action, meaning that a court would approve it as a class action so that it could proceed in that fashion in federal court than it is in state court. In fact, there are some state courts across the country where when the complaint is filed, if the complaint contains the necessary allegations, the court will certify a class action immediately, even before the defendant shows up in what's known as a drive-by certification, whereas in federal courts, the parties have to put on evidence, and the, and the judge takes a very careful look, generally speaking, to see whether the case ought to qualify as a class action or not. And what, what the situation had been in the past is that federal law had allowed some cases to be brought from state court into federal court if enough money was at stake. And the amount of money at stake was rather small. Even today, it's only $75,000 has to be at stake between one plaintiff and one defendant. But if, if in fact... That amount of money was not at stake as to any given plaintiff. Even if you had, say, 100,000 plaintiffs that each had a $50 claim, meaning that the case was worth, in the aggregate, $5 million. Because none of the plaintiffs individually had a claim that was worth $75,000, the case could not be brought into federal court. And what the Class Action Fairness Act has done is say that where a case in the aggregate is worth $5 million or more, you can move that class action case out of state court into federal court where the defendant will have the benefit of more rigorous review as to whether the case should proceed as a class action where appellate review will be available both initially if the removal is challenged and later on as to the ruling concerning whether the case ought to be certified as a class action or not. So I think that the law thus far is, is working the way that uh, Congress had intended it to work, which is that a number of cases that have been filed as class actions after the law's effective date, meaning February, the 8th, February 18th, 2005, are now being brought into federal court by defendants and are ending up in federal court because they qualify under the Act, and th those cases are not as readily being certified as class actions as they probably would have been had they stayed in state court. Well, this is, this is Craig. President Bush was fairly quick to claim that it would be stopping plaintiff's lawyers from shopping class action suits to the best court. Do you think that's become an effective tool? I, 
I don't know uh, whether that's become a, an effective tool or, or, or not, but I do know that defendants are regularly invoking the law to, to bring these cases in, into federal court. And uh, as, as the earlier guest was explaining, a lot of the initial litigation has concerned whether the case was pending before the law was in effect or not, because those, those earlier pending cases had to stay behind in, in state court. They were not covered by the law. So, so a lot of the early litigation has concerned that. But, but certainly it does deprive plaintiff's lawyers of their choice of form in many cases. And, and what had happened was in the days before the law was due to go into effect, a lot of these cases were filed right then because the plaintiff lawyers didn't, didn't want to be bothered with having to deal with the law and, and thought that uh, that was the clear way to avoid it. Now, for the future, there's not going to be a way to avoid it. And, and so I do think that eventually what President Bush said uh, will be realized. Shannon, Shannon Duffy, I wonder if I could ask you, you've written an illegal intelligencer about a couple of uh, cases recently where plaintiffs had tried to uh, get their cases sent back to state court after, uh, after they were moved to federal court. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those and what the outcome was? Well, sure. It, it, as Howard was saying, this, this first wave of decisions we're seeing uh, talk a lot about the date of commencement uh, and whether or not uh, the state court action was removable to federal court uh, based on the date it started, whether or not CAFA had already taken effect. And what's been interesting is the, the courts have been uh, splitting on this around the country. Sometimes uh, courts are saying that when plaintiffs take certain actions later, for instance, they add an additional defendant or they add new plaintiffs, that that is a new commencement, if you will, and at that point makes it subject to CAFA and removable to federal court. Uh, other judges are saying, no, that relates back to the original filing, and I'm going to send it back to state court. This first wave, though, is, is, is going to be over after a while because uh, we're not going to have any of these cases in the middle ground. The next uh, big battle, as I see it, is going to be over the $5 million requirement. Um, as Howard was discussing, and and specifically, too, who has the burden of proof there? Some courts are taking the position that CAFA shifted the burden. The defendant removes to federal court, and then this new law puts the burden on the plaintiffs to prove that the case is not a $5 million case. Ordinarily, the party asking for the transfer to federal court, to, uh, you know, removing the case, is it has the burden to show federal jurisdiction. Some judges are, re are resisting that and saying they won't shift the burden. Um, and, and, and two, how do you calculate those, uh, the aggregate of that case? Can you include, for instance, um, attorney's fees? as part of the analysis. These are some of the questions that we're going to see as new waves of decisions come out under CAFA. Richard, have you seen any attorneys inflating the value of lawsuits to make that $5 million jurisdictional requirement? Well, here, here's the problem is that uh, the typical class action complaint uh, doesn't state uh, an, a damages amount. So the defendant is left to, to guess uh, what it is. And the traditional rule uh, under under pre-CAFA, which dealt 
with non-class actions because it, you only looked at what the uh, uh, what the name plaintiffs uh, amount in controversy was. Uh, it came up in the context of, of plaintiffs who would limit. They say, "I'm only seeking seventy." Four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars, and the plaintiff is presumably able to limit his his damages. Um, here, it, it, you know, the courts that say that the burden of proof should remain with the defendant, I think, are mixing uh, apples and oranges when they they apply the old law uh, on the seventy-five thousand as to an individual plaintiff. You're dealing with a statute that is specifically directed toward get moving cases to federal court presumptively putting cases into federal court whereas under old law uh federal courts were of limited jurisdiction and the presumption was against putting cases in federal court so uh, i believe that there's a a clear mandate and you have to be uh, an ivory tower hair splitter to to say that there's no direction in cafa uh that that would give a court the ability to say that the uh, plaintiff has the burden to prove that his case isn't worth more than five million. The presumption is cases go up, up to the federal courts, and there's there's plenty of legislative history in that, uh, that that's specific to that. Well, Howard, you'd like like Shannon have written a lot about CAFA. Uh, Do you think it favors plaintiffs or defendants from your perspective? Well, it it was certainly intended to favor defendants, and and I think that uh, that in the broad range of matters, it, it probably will uh, end up favoring defendants, although federal courts have shown that they will certify cases as class actions when, when the case meets the more rigorous federal criteria to do so. So, so it's, it's not an all-or-nothing proposition, but I think that generally speaking, it will be more difficult in federal court for these plaintiffs' attorneys to obtain class certification than it would have been had the cases stayed in state court. And, and looking at it from the defendant's perspective, what, when you're facing a serious threat of class certification, or if you're in one of those jurisdictions where it's essentially automatic, and then the defendant has to try to work to undo it, which is a lot more difficult than avoiding it initially, uh, the, the, the defendant, which is often a big corporation, is, is facing a very serious financial threat that uh, often uh, conservative business management uh, decides ought to be resolved by throwing some money at it and and dealing with it that way as opposed to litigating it to the bitter end where the result could be even worse and and so uh that that seems to be to be what's going to be avoided by this law is is having businesses pay significant amounts of money to settle cases that never should have been certified in the first place and uh and so that's why i think generally speaking it will end up favoring defendants i think it's also going to uh result in significant judicial economy because one remarkable aspect of CAFA is that prior to CAFA, I don't think there was any law that uh, that it included this concept of minimal diversity. Uh, it used to be that to get into federal court, you either had to have a federal question or you had to have what we called absolute diversity so that all of the plaintiffs are citizens of states different from all of the defendants. And they changed that here. And so I'd like to pose a question to the the lawyer guests on the show. Um, Did it used to be the case that you would have some federal class actions that also had companion cases in some state courts uh, 
proceeding at the same time because of diversity issues, because some of the plaintiffs were able to stay out of the federal case because they were in the same state as the defendant. Yes. Let me ask you to hold that question for a second, Shannon. We have to uh, take a break, and I know that Richard uh, has to go. Uh, Richard, I wondered if you wanted to just uh, give us a, a brief final thought and let us know uh, if your law firm has a website or if you have contact information you want to give us. Well, well I do. Uh, let me just say this. I'm, 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 a def- I'm representing defendant in the action I referred to, but I do probably much more work on the plaintiff's side. And from a, a plaintiff's perspective, frankly, I, I, I don't think that the Class Action Fairness Act is uh, is is anything horrible. It's uh, it was aimed at a few abusive uh, magnet state courts. Uh, often on the plaintiff side, we've strained to get into federal court in the first instance because we think we get more sophisticated jurists often who can give our our complex litigation claims the uh, the attention that they need. Uh, we've we've tried uh, mightily in antitrust cases to to plead injunctive claims uh, just so we can get into federal court because we were indirect purchasers. So I, I didn't view it as is is anything uh, horrible except for those those attorneys who were very used to practicing in their own uh, uh, special state courts. All right, thank you, um, Richard. Does your firm have a website you'd like we to find? We do. It is ldbs dot com. L is in left, D is in drive, B is in boy, S is in uh, uh, Sam. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. We know you have to run, and, and we'll be back with Howard and Shannon to wrap up in just a couple of seconds. But thanks a lot, Richard Cohen. Thanks, everyone. Bye. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. 
And I'm Craig Williams. We're discussing the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005 with Shannon Duffy and Howard Bashman. And one last question before we do a wrap-up here, or maybe a couple last questions. Um, is this really a political issue? Is, are there attempts to kind of repeal the legislation or challenge it? Shannon, what have you seen from, from your perspective? Oh, I don't think there's anything underway to repeal the law. Uh, it got 72 votes, as I recall. Quite a few Democrats uh, crossed the line and, and voted for it. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if it's... I think I agree with what our... Uh, departing guests said that it's not necessarily terrible for plaintiffs. Some plaintiffs uh, prefer being in in federal court, uh, as as he said, because the judges uh, uh, sometimes are perceived as more competent, and uh, you uh, you get a, a faster docket. Um, and it's also and so if you to... are confident that your case can should be certified as a class action, you don't have a problem being in federal court. Sorry to almost interrupt there. It's also easier in federal court to take discovery outside of a given state where the case may be pending. And a lot of these class actions involve facts that do require folks to go take depositions in other places than merely the state where the case is pending. So certainly federal court does advantage the plaintiff's attorneys as well. But I do think that there are many cases where the plaintiff's attorneys would probably prefer to be in state court, uh, but but I agree with Shannon 100% that that this law is is not anywhere near on the verge of of being repealed. And uh, as as uh, good business people do, the, the plaintiff's bar is adjusting and uh, will will figure out uh, ways to uh, to keep bringing cases into court. Uh, hopefully, cases that that have merit as opposed to ones that don't. Well, it was not just plaintiffs' groups that opposed the law. I mean, the state state attorneys general, I think, as as a group, uh, were opposed to the law and said it was said that it would be anti-consumer and and pro big business. Um, one of the one of the aspects of the law that we haven't talked about was the uh, uh, fact that it tried to, uh, I guess, reform uh, attorneys' fees in in class actions by uh, uh, in cases where class actions are settled with some kind of a coupon. Uh, for consumers, uh, in, uh, as I understand it, before CAFA, uh, uh, the attorney's fees were calculated based on the uh, face value of the coupons, and, and, and now they're they're being uh, calculated based on the redeemed value of the coupons. Do, do I have that right? I, I think that that is correct, and and that certainly was one of the abuses that uh, the law intended to targets and and that was an area where collusion i believe was was existing between plaintiffs lawyers and and the defendant to the detriment of the folks in the class that the plaintiffs lawyers were supposed to be representing so so that uh, uh, yeah, but at the same time the courts were already showing hostility toward that and uh, even before CAFA was passed uh, some circuits were already making it very difficult to do coupon settlements well, what including including our own third act? circuit. I'm sorry. Howard, what about the reverse act, uh, auction uh, tactic that's been used by some defendants to, you know, find another group of plaintiffs, uh, have them come in and cut a sweetheart deal with them? Does CAFA have any effect on that? I, I don't know that uh, that that's directly addressed in in the uh, law, but but I think that courts are certainly on on the lookout for uh, for, for that happening and uh, understand that that is is not an appropriate way of proceeding. Howard, uh, have any CAFA cases made their way towards the appellate courts yet? A number have, and and uh, 
many of them have uh, arisen at the removal stage, as, as Shannon had mentioned earlier, uh, dealing with whether the case uh, was commenced or, or not uh, before the law came into existence. The, the particular appeal provision that, uh, that allows review of a decision whether or not to send the case back to state court is uh, one of the subjects that I've written about because that, that particular provision uh, contains a rather egregious error in the timing, uh, the statement of when the appeal has to be filed. But uh, the, the Seventh Circuit out of Chicago has uh, issued a number of decisions that, that involve CAFA and, uh, and the two circuits that have addressed the, uh, the error in, in the statute's timing provision are the Ninth Circuit out of San Francisco and the Tenth Circuit out of Denver, Colorado. And the important thing there is that uh, CAFA allows an appeal. Ordinarily, if a uh, federal district judge uh, at the trial level sends uh, a case back to the state courts, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no appeal. You cannot appeal a, a remand order, but CAFA says you can. And so we are going to see more of these cases going to the circuits. So you mentioned the... Uh the the uh, that the next uh, Shannon you said the next uh, sort of uh, battleground uh, with respect to CAFA will be on on the five million uh, dollar uh, uh, entry fee so to call so to speak. Uh, what are some of the other issues that are that are continuing to be debated and sorted through in the courts under this law? Well, I think one remarkable thing we've seen is that uh, uh, quite often arbitration becomes an issue and the defendant removes to federal court and then says to the judge, please dismiss this and order these plaintiffs to arbitrate this claim. And the question of whether you can arbitrate a class action is an interesting question, but the important thing here is it's now a, a federal judge who will be applying the Federal Arbitration Act uh, will not look to state law as I see it, but instead will look to federal law on the question of whether or not this case should be arbitrated. And we could see quite a few cases go to federal court and then be kicked out of court in that way. Are there a cadre of class action arbitrators out there standing ready to take this uh, load from the federal courts? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think it's... It, 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 varies from case to case what the arbitration agreement look lo looks like. Uh, when you have a consumer class action, some courts have taken the position that uh, they simply can't be arbitrated. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the federal courts have had a, a strong preference in favor of arbitration. And so the folks who write arbitration clauses into agreements have been following this and have been tailoring them as the case law develops to make sure that they will hold up in court. I wonder if Howard has anything to say about how that's playing out. Well, Howard, well, I think you have huh? something on your blog about Jams's decision to not hear class action lawsuits. Uh, I I don't recall that specifically. Sad to say, but but it may have been somewhere else. Uh, in other words, but uh, I, I think that. Certainly, from the defendant's perspective, again, a lot of these arbitration agreements are written in a way that, that uh, would preclude the arbitration from occurring as, as a class action. So, so I can envision cases where a class action suit is, is filed in state court. It's subject to being removed to federal court because the amount in controversy is satisfied, the $5 million. And then once the case is in federal court, the way that the defendant 
can defeat the plaintiff's hope of obtaining class certification is, is by enforcing an arbitration agreement that, that perhaps uh, denies the plaintiff the, the right to have it proceed as a class action. And, and if that, that's an agreement that is enforceable as against the plaintiff because the plaintiff has entered into it, uh, then, then the defendant has essentially achieved what, what the defendant wanted, which is both arbitration and avoiding having the case resolved as, as a class action. We have just a, a few minutes left, and I wonder if I could ask you, Howard, if you have any, any final thoughts you want to offer on CAFA before we conclude. Well, I think that, uh, that, that CAFA was sold as the centerpiece of, of the conservative tort reform agenda, and uh, it's a little bit early to, to see if, if it uh, has played out that way yet, but, but I think that, uh, that, that I was surprised that it passed by such a large margin in, in both houses of Congress and uh, and I think that uh, that in looking back on it, uh, it, it, it may turn out to be an important piece of legislation that, that the Bush administration was able to get through Congress in its two terms. And Howard, if there's anybody listening to this program who does not know how to find how appealing, where would they find it? It's uh, at appellatesblog.com. Thank you. And Shannon, uh, any final thoughts from you before we wrap up? Well, I think this is a very complicated law. We have seen one wave of decisions on uh, the commencement date, uh, which, which of the pending lawsuits at the time this, this, this law passed, which ones of those will be affected by this law. But there's a lot more to come, and uh, it's going to be litigated heavily, uh, and a lot of it's going to happen at the circuits. I, I, uh, some of the toughest questions, I think, are going to come with the attorney's fees issues, uh, but they may take years to bubble up. Right, well, thank you very much to our guests, and uh, thank you to my co-host, Craig Williams. Craig, I'll see you next week. We'll see you next week as well, Bob. Thank you very much. And Shannon Howard, thank you very much for participating. Shannon, do you uh, want to give your website uh, where you write? Uh, my stories appear sometimes on uh, www.law.com. Familiar to most. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. We appreciate your participation in our show today, and we'll see our listeners next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.